This week's Parsha podcast is sponsored in honor of a dear personal friend and a friend of Torch, Dr. Howard Schreiber. Dr. Schreiber is a committed listener to the Parsha podcast and all the other Torch podcasts for many years now. He also frequently emails me with amazing questions and comments on the Parsha, making him a model podcast listener. Dr. Schreiber, thank you for tremendous support of Torch and the Torch podcast throughout the years, and for regularly sending me awesome and stimulating questions on the Parsha. And to all the other listeners out there, you too could email me at rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Parsha's Vayishlach is the fourth longest Parsha in the Torah with 154 verses. It also contains the final mitzvah of the three mitzvahs that we find in the book of Genesis. At the end of last week's Parsha, Jacob finally had escaped and survived the standoff with his father-in-law Laban. And as he's heading towards Israel, he's about to encounter the other grand nemesis of his life, his brother Esau, Esau, the one that a few weeks ago we read how he had pledged to kill him. And our Parsha begins where Jacob sends messengers, either human or angel, ahead of him to his brother Esau, to the land of Seir, to the field of Edom. And he commands these messengers, telling them, So shall you say to my master, to Esau, So says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban, and I have delayed until now. And right off the bat, we're told by the commentaries, primarily the Ramban, that this entire episode, this entire portion where Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau and his preparations ahead of time and how he goes about navigating this potentially dangerous encounter is a guideline for us and for our leaders of how we are supposed to behave when dealing with foreign powers. In fact, in the 1970s, the Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, traveled to the United States to partake in the Camp David Accords with Anwar Sadat and Jimmy Carter. And on the way to Washington, he stopped off in New York City, where he met the three most important rabbis of the time. And all three of them told him the same thing. They gave him the same advice. Before you actually meet these potential foes, study Jacob's encounter with his brother. And the first thing we notice from the initial instruction that he gives to his messengers regarding what they're supposed to say to Esau is that he calls him, so shall you say to my Lord, to Esau, so has said your servant Jacob. We see right away that Jacob is reaching out to Esau, his brother, with humility, humbling himself, lowering himself, and giving tremendous honor to his antagonist, his brother Esau. The Midrash tells us about the great Rabbi Judah, the prince who was the leader of the Jewish people at the end of the second century, that he once had to have a communication with the leader of the Romans at the time, whose name was the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, and he had one of his aides write him a letter uh, to, to be conveyed to the emperor in Rome. So this aide starts writing the letter, and he starts off writing the letter from Judah, the prince of Israel, to our master, the emperor Antoninus. So Rabbi Judah the prince takes the letter, reads it, tears it up, 
and says, no, 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 this is how you write it. From your servant, Judah, to our master, the emperor Antoninus. So the aide tells him, aren't you dishonoring yourself? You're, after all, the most important Jew in the world. You don't write yourself, you don't destroy, you don't destroy, you, sh- you ought not describe yourself as a servant. So Rabbi Judah responded, am I any better than Jacob? Jacob conveyed to Esau, your servant Jacob, send this message to the master Esau. So we see right away that the first tactic that we ought to use in our interactions with the non-Jews or with the descendants of Esau, when we have an encounter with them, is humility not to act with bravado, not to be pompous, and to try to not awaken their anger or their potential wrath or violence towards us. In fact, the Ramban quotes a Midrash who says that Jacob made a mistake by even reaching out to Esau. He, in the words of the Midrash, he grabbed the wild dog by its ears. He should have just traveled back to Israel and not even mentioned Esau, let Esau forget that he even exists. Don't remind him that you're there and don't provoke this potential encounter. Now Rashi tells us that Jacob is actually conveying a subliminal message when he he tells Esau, I have lived with Laban and I've lingered until now. Imlavan garti, the words imlavan garti, I have lived with Laban, the word garti is the same letters as the words taryag, which, according to the Gematria numerical system, equates to 613, which amount to the amount of mitzvot that we have in the Torah. Rashi tells us that, Jacob's, that Jacob is subliminal, subliminally conveying to Esau that despite the fact that I lived with Laban, I did not neglect observing the Torah. And therefore, what he's suggesting to him is that don't think that I'm vulnerable because I don't have the Torah to, to, to defend me. I, I still have the support of the spiritual forces because I have not abandoned Torah. And there's maybe a deep point here. He tells him, I have lived with Laban, meaning I was aware of the entailed danger, and that is the way I was able to maintain my command of 613 mitzvos. I was able to maintain my stature because I was aware of the potential danger. Maybe the lesson for us is that despite the fact that Jacob was with, was with Laban and there was a risk of acculturation, of him becoming similar, becoming influenced from the ways of the people around him, most prominently the ways of Laban, that is not inevitable and it's possible to sidestep them. However, you have to take concrete actions to prevent the influence that you could have from someone like Laban. So this message is conveyed, a message of peace, a message of humility is conveyed to Esau, and he tells him, I'm sending to send my Lord to find favor in your eyes. I don't want to fight. I want to be at peace with you. And the angels return to Jacob, and they tell him, we have come to your brother, to Esau. Moreover, he is heading towards you. He's coming to you with 400 men. Despite the fact that Jacob reached out with humility, Esau responds with, a threat of violence. He has 400 men and they are coming to encounter Jacob. Jacob becomes very frightened. He is distressed. He is terrified, says Rashi, that he may die and may have casualties amongst his contingency, but he's also distressed by the fact that he may have to kill others. 
although he may be legally entitled to defend himself, even if it means killing the perpetrators, he is not excited about going about doing that. And he right away gets into action. The Talmud tells us that he prepares for this encounter. He doesn't sit back and rely on miracles, despite the fact that the Almighty just sent him angels. He has angels assisting him in reaching out to to Esau. Still, he's not relying on those miracles, and he's preparing for war. How is he preparing for war? And how, as the commentaries tell us, ought we to prepare for encounters with uh, antagonists? Three things. Number one, he tries to send a bribe. He tries to send a gift. He tries to avoid the, the conflict. He tries to avoid the conflict entirely by appeasement. That's the first thing. Number two, he says a prayer, a very lengthy prayer to the Almighty to be spared from this danger. And finally, he prepares for war. What kind of war? If necessary, violent war. Alternatively, he tries to create an escape plan. And he even splits up his group into two separate groups to flee in different directions. So even if one of them is caught and slaughtered by Esau, the other one will be spared. And we learn something, I think, very important here. There's nothing cowardly in escaping. I think in modern times, there's been a certain ideal that is lionized, a certain pride, a certain machismo, a certain arrogance is that you know we don't surrender we always fight. We don't need to bribe our enemies. Uh, maybe we've stigmatized ancient Jewish communities as maybe being a little bit helpless, a little bit feeble, going like sheep to the slaughter. But we see that bribing the enemy, escaping from the enemy, those are very good policies, policies instituted by Jacob as a way to avert and avoid danger. So Jacob begins his prayers. In verse 10, and he says, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Hashem, who had said to me, return to your land and to your relatives and I will do good to you. I have been diminished by all the kindnesses and by all the truth that you have done for your servant. For with my staff, I have crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. He begins by telling God, just like we saw a few weeks ago with Abraham, I'm worried of all the good things that have happened to me. I crossed over when I left my family. All I had was me and my staff that we spoke about last time. He had all his possessions stolen from him. When he arrived in the house of Laban, all he had was him and his staff. And now what does he have? He has 12 children, four wives, an entire camp, two camps full of his household. All that was divine goodness. And now he's worried, maybe from all the good things that he's got, his merits have been diminished and reduced, and he has no more merits to be able to survive the encounter with Esau. The Talmud tells us, and derives from this statement, that a person should never place themselves in a dangerous situation and say, well, I'll survive because there will be a miracle. Why? Because maybe there won't be a miracle. You can't rely on the miracle. And even if there is a miracle, well, that will diminish your merits. Everything good that happens to you, says the Talmud, based upon this statement from Jacob, everything positive that happens to you, that may exhaust your spiritual credits, your merits, your mitzvahs that you have done, 
and then you, you may be left without any more in the tank, in the bank for the future. Jacob, someone as great as Jacob, he's one of the forefathers, the founders of our religions, one of the greatest heroes of Jewish history, he is concerned that maybe he has nothing left in the tank and he is vulnerable for Esau. Rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and strike me down, mother and children. And you had said, I will surely do good with you, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which is too numerous to count. The commentators have pointed out that Jacob tells God, rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. There's two potential dangers that Jacob is worried about. He's worried about the encounter with his brother, and he's worried with the the encounter with Esau. His brother, brotherly love, is also a danger. He's worried that maybe, on one hand, Esau will reach out to him like a brother and want to befriend him, want to be close to him, and that potentially could influence them spiritually. He's also worried that Esau may react and may treat them like Esau. Esau the murderer, Esau the sinner, and may come to kill them or to act violently towards them. And these are kind of the dual threats that we have to tiptoe around with our encounters with the greater population around us. On one hand, we've suffered a lot over the course of our history from anti-Semitism, from people acting as Esau. And I think in modern times, there is less anti-Semitism. Of course, anti-Semitism is still present, as we all know. But for the most part, certainly in Western countries and in America, of course, uh, there is not as much anti-Semitism as there was in previous generations in different places in the world. But now there's a lot of love and Jews are welcome. And in fact, there's a study that shows that Jews are the most admired group in America. So we're loved and they're treating us like the brother. There's no more Esau or there's much less of the Esau, but that brings with it an entire new set of not physical mortal dangers, but of spiritual dangers, because what happens when we're welcomed? Well, we may come to lose our identity and what makes us special. So those are the two dangers that Jacob prays. Save me, save me from my brother and save me from Esau. And then Jacob moves on to prepare the tribute, the gift, the bribe that he's going to send to his brother, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, camels, cows, bulls, a very lengthy, robust gift. Rashi tells us that he sent him gems as well. And then he does something really interesting. He doesn't give the gift all at once. There's hundreds and hundreds of animals and an incredible tribute that he's going to give to Esau. He doesn't do it all at once. He puts a break between each group. He sends one group, he divides into a bunch of groups, and he puts a space between each drove. And he tells them what to tell Esau when he encounters them. When you meet Esau, you say, this is your servant Jacob, sending you this gift to your Lord Esau, and he's coming, and this is a gift for you. And Rashi points out that when you get a gift bit by bit, it actually is amplified. It seems like it's so much more versus if you get one huge gift all at once. I remember reading a study regarding the tips of, of waiters 
who give out candies. We know that sometimes a waiter at a restaurant will give a candy to the patron and that will help contribute, hopefully, to the patron giving a larger tip to the waiter. And they did an interesting study. They had one group of waiters give two candies with the bill. And then they had a second group that gave one candy and then stopped and gave a second candy. And they found that the group of waiters that gave the candy one at a time, that increased by a huge factor and increased the size of the tips that they received because psychologically in the head of the recipient, when you get one and you get another, that's a more effective gift than when you get it all at once. So Jacob gives these instructions to the messengers who are giving the gifts to Esau. And again, he's always speaking regarding himself as a servant to my master Esau. And that's what he hopes to appease him. And the two camps are getting closer to each other. That night, verse 23, we learn Jacob takes his two wives, his two handmaids, his 11 sons, and they cross over the river of Yabok. So Jacob is heading west. Esau is coming with 400 men east. Jacob has already sent all the gifts to Esau and hopefully to appease them. Now, if we read the accounting of Jacob's family, we see he has two wives, two handmaids, 11 sons. Last week's parasha, we read about his 11 sons, but also his one daughter. And in verse 23, his daughter is omitted from the account of the family. So Rashi tells us something very surprising. Where was Dina? Where was Jacob's daughter, Dina? Jacob placed her in a box and he locked the box. Why? So that Esau should not see his beautiful daughter and not covet and desire her. Well, that seems quite sensible. If you're about to meet one of the most notorious sinners in the world who has a proclivity for beautiful women and you have a beautiful woman in your camp, it seems quite sensible to hide her. But then Rashi continues, and therefore Jacob was punished. A little bit later on, we read the Parsha, how really bad things are going to happen to this Dina, the daughter of Jacob. Why was Jacob punished that his daughter Dina was assaulted by Shechem later on in the Parsha? That's because Jacob was punished that he withheld his daughter Dina from Esau. He shouldn't have put her in the box. She should have maybe married Esau and she would have caused him to repent. And because Jacob did not avail his daughter to his brother, therefore bad things happened to his daughter and she was assaulted by Shechem. So this is a very interesting idea. Dina, Jacob's daughter, could potentially have influenced Esau to repent. And in fact, the Talmud notes that a wife, generally speaking, has a greater influence on her husband than vice versa than the husband has on the wife. And therefore, it's likely that Dina would have influenced Esau more than Esau would have influenced Dina. But this is still so surprising. Like, what's the option? Isn't it not patently irresponsible, reckless, to give your daughter to Esau? It seems so unusual that Jacob is 
being punished for what seems to be prudent parenting. So the Muslim masters say something very illuminating. They say that, yes, Jacob should have hidden his daughter, but he didn't need to lock the box so tightly. Or Alternatively, he should have at least felt bad that withholding her from Esau will disallow such an outcome. Now, for sure, he won't be influenced to repent. This is an incredible insight that shows kind of the, the, the that shows the standard to which Jacob is held. He's punished because he didn't feel bad that he wasn't able to positively influence his brother. And I think there's another incredible insight here. You know, Esau, they're twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is already well over a hundred years old. Esau is also over a hundred years old. You would think, well, he's set in his ways. He's Esau the sinner, and he'll remain Esau the sinner. But here we see that that was not necessarily set in stone. It was never too late for him to repent. Now, as they're crossing over this river, Yabok, Jacob is left alone on one side of the river. The whole, the rest of the family is on the other side of the river. And he has a man approaching him and they start wrestling. And there's a fight the whole night until the break of dawn. Rashi tells us that this was no ordinary man. This was the angel of Esau, who, just like Jacob sent angels to Esau, Esau apparently has an angel too, and he sent him to go attack Jacob. And he attacks Jacob when Jacob is alone. And the whole night they're fighting, and he's not able to overcome Jacob. So what does he do? He reaches over to his hip, he dislocates his hip, and then Jacob has control of this angel. Uh, Jacob's injured, but... The angel now wants to leave, and Jacob doesn't doesn't let him leave. And he says, let me go. No, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. And he blesses him that his name is no longer only Jacob. Now his name is also Israel. Why? The word Israel means to struggle. And you were able to struggle with man, with with Laban and with Esau and with God, i.e. with angels, you were able to overcome me. And chapter 32 ends that therefore the children of Israel, the Jewish people, are not allowed to eat the part of the animal that corresponds to the part of Jacob that was injured. And that is what's known as the sciatic nerve, which is why today you want kosher meat. We, we don't eat from the hind quarters of the animal because we have to navigate parts of the animal that even in a kosher animal are not kosher because it contains this part of the animal that the angel of Esau injured in Jacob. So there's a few very interesting teachings regarding this episode. So first thing Rashi tells us, why was Jacob alone? He says that he had crossed over he quotes from the Talmud that Jacob had crossed over with the family and then he remembered that he had left small jugs on the other side of the river. And because he didn't want to forfeit the value of even the small jugs, he appreciated all the money that the Almighty gave him and therefore it was improper for him to devalue even something that was very inexpensive. He was even willing to endanger himself to cross over the river and to go collect those jugs and bring them together with the entire camp, he wasn't willing to forfeit that, which is an interesting lesson that the righteous do not devalue, do not neglect the gifts that the Almighty gives them. 
And then Jacob is struggling with the angel, which shows us just the stature of, of Jacob. The Talmudic literature tells us that Jacob's visage, his countenance, was similar to that of Adam, the primordial Adam. He was like an angel, and therefore it was parody, the battle that he had with the angel. And the angel, the whole night, is trying to find some vulnerability in Jacob. And this is, of course, it's not a physical flight. It's some sort of cosmic struggle between Jacob, the veritable angel, and the angel of Esau. And this, of course, portends to all of history, this idea that the history is is nighttime. And even though we'll be injured, but over the course of the entire nighttime, the entire history of the Jewish people and their and their interactions with Esau and his forces, we're not going to ever be vanquished. There's never going to be a mortal blow that's going to land upon us. Yes, we'll get injured, but we won't be destroyed. And there's, of course, multitudes of commentaries explaining what's going on. And as we mentioned, there's 154 verses in this parsha. And if we're going to do it in an hour, we have about 30 seconds per verse. So obviously we can't go into the most granular detail and going through all the commentaries, but one of the commentaries uh, is a very interesting one. The Rabbeinu Bachai tells us that this fight was the angel trying to find a spiritual vacuum, a spiritual void, a spiritual vulnerability in Jacob. And he didn't find anything. Jacob was entirely free of any sin. However, there was one sin that Jacob was imperfect in, that is the sin of marrying two sisters. And therefore, he strikes him at his thigh. And we've already seen this a few weeks ago, that the thigh is representative of the genitalia area, which is the area in which Jacob's imperfection is manifested. And therefore, he was able to attack him in his thigh because there was an area that he, of course, had justifications for that, but he married two sisters, and therefore he wasn't perfect there, and therefore he was not impervious to the attacks of Esau's angel. The Kabbalists point out that the legs, well, they're not the essence of man. They're not the part of the trunk of man. They're kind of these appendages coming out of the trunk, which is the essence of man, meaning that Jacob, in his essence, was impervious to the angel, but his legs, the things that stuck out, the, the, the fringes, the appendages of Jacob, that's where we could be attacked. And after this long nocturnal struggle, Jacob seems to triumph, or at least it's a draw, it's a stalemate. And Jacob gets something out of it. He gets an injury, but he also gets a name addition, not a name change like we had by Abraham and Sarah, but a name addition. And of course, there's many interpretations of what this means. And in fact, later on in the Parsha, the Almighty is going to affirm this additional name where Jacob is also called Israel. But just one idea of the name Israel, and that is found in the Kabbalistic sources, the word Yisrael, Israel, is an acronym for Yesh Shishim Ribui Oisios La Torah, that there are 600,000 letters of the Torah. That is hinted in the name Israel, is hinted this idea that all of Torah is incorporated 
in the essence of our nation, which amounted to 600,000 people when we left from Egypt, when we became a nation. In addition, the name Jacob, Rashi tells us, it seems to imply a certain degree of deception. Like, like Esau said, that Jacob stole the blessing. He had, to, he had to resort to chicanery to be able to get the blessings. However, the word Yisrael, from the word Tsar, meaning master or minister, a term of nobility, a term of aristocracy, a term of someone who does not need to use deception and subterfuge to be able to get what they want. Now, in the actual text of the Torah, the word Yisrael is connected to the word Sarisa, which means you have struggled. The angel tells Jacob, you have struggled with man and with the divine, and you have overcome. And this is an interesting idea that, you know, Jacob himself lives a very chaotic life. He's struggling with Esau, then to Laban, and back to Esau, and then there's going to be the episode of Dina, and later on in Genesis we'll read about the saga of Joseph. And this is, of course, the history of the Jewish people. It's like, the, it's like our destiny. It's a never-ending struggle that really defines our history as a people. But I think there's a deep point here, and that is the fact that Jacob won, that's not incorporated in his name. That's almost irrelevant. What is relevant is that he struggled. He was a fighter. And that's, I think, a good lesson for us. You know, we cannot decide what the results are of our efforts. It's not up to us. In life, we have our challenges, and each one of us is going to be pulled and pummeled by all the forces of our lives, by social pressure, by the it's rather evil inclination, from within, from without. And the bottom line is, we have to be like Israel. We have to fight, and what the outcome of our efforts is going to be, that's, of course, not our department, But our goal is to put in our best effort and leave everything else to the Almighty. As a result of this episode, the Jewish people are forever prohibited to eat various parts of the hindquarters of the animal. And in fact, uh, the entire hindquarters are usually sold to the non-kosher market. And the commentaries tell us a variety of reasons why this episode ought to be memorialized with this mitzvah. So the Rashbam tells us, well, it's a miracle. If you had to give odds in a fight between a human and an angel, of course, everyone would pick the angel. And here, Jacob is at least able to bring him to a stalemate. That's a tremendous miracle. And to remember that miracle, we withhold from eating that food. And every time we withhold, we remember the miracle. The Sephardah tells us also something interesting and that is, is that, yes, there was a fight, and yes, Jacob was able to have a draw, but ultimately he sustained damage in this hip. We want to render that damage insignificant. We're going to say, you know what, that part of the animal, that part of us, that part of the existence, we don't care about it. We don't want to eat it. We're not involved with it. The damage done to Jacob is immaterial. Alternatively, some of the other commentaries say something, I think, very enlightening, And that is that it's punishment to the sons of Israel, to the children of Israel, to the 11 sons of Jacob who allowed this to happen. It was only because Jacob was alone that he was vulnerable. They should not have let their father go unattended. And therefore, as a result, forever, they are going to be punished by having to withhold from eating that part of the animal and making it very difficult 
to be able to consume an entire, even kosher animal, because of the treacherous work in trying to remove all the forbidden parts of the animal. And in chapter 33, that fateful encounter finally happens. Jacob raises his eyes and sees, behold, Esau is coming. He has 400 men with him. He divides his children. Leah, Rachel, the two handmaids. He put the handmaids of the children first, then Leah, then Rachel. And then he went out ahead of them. Jacob goes first. He doesn't hide behind the lines. He's the first person on the front lines. And he bows earthward seven times until he reaches his brother. As we will see, there's all kinds of preparations for this battle, but it ends up being quite anticlimactic. Jacob is able is able to evade catastrophe. Esau ran towards him, embraced him, fell upon his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau does not respond with violence. Instead, Esau responds with love. He starts crying, he starts hugging him, starts kissing him. He sees the family and he's so excited to meet them, apparently. All the children bow before him and it seems like it's going to be amicably resolved. And the commentaries tell us that Jacob's entreatments of his brother worked. He submitted himself. He was humble. He kept on bowing down seven times. He bowed down to his brother. And that changed, diminished, or assuaged Esau's anger and wrath. Yes, Jacob may have deceived Esau, and he maybe received the blessings, and he stole the blessings. He did, he did bad things to Esau, at least in Esau's eyes. But look, he reaches out with humility, and that was able to alleviate Esau's wrath. And this is maybe a good lesson for us. And it continues the theme that we've seen here that Jacob does with his brother. And that is that it's it's important to concede on the little things like, like pride and win the big things. And maybe for us, more broadly speaking, as a nation, we walk around telling people, you know, we're God's chosen people. And although that may be true, but what do we gain by flaunting our superiority? It's maybe important to follow Jacob's model, to be pride and prideful and happy that we're selected by God to accomplish the mission that Abraham began in the world but to not make other people feel bad about that, to be able to be humble when we meet other people that are not given that same gift. So, J- so Jacob has bowed down to Esau, and then, and then the handmaids came forth, and then Leah and her family and her children for- came forth, and then Joseph, and then Rachel. Joseph went before Rachel. He didn't want Jacob to see his mother, and therefore he went ahead of his mother. Everyone is bowing down to Esau, according him with tremendous honor and being very humble and submitting themselves to him. Now, the Midrash points out that there is one son of Jacob that is not present at this encounter. And that, of course, is the son that has not yet been born yet, Benjamin. At the end of the Parsha, Benjamin is going to be born, but he is not alive yet, and therefore he never bowed down to Esau. And the Midrash points out that Mordechai, from the Purim story, he had the fortitude to not bow down to Haman. Why? Specifically because his ancestor, Benjamin, did not bow down to Haman's ancestor, 
Esau. And after the initial encounter, the two brothers are talking. Esau asked, why did you send me all those gifts? Jacob responds, well, I wanted to find favor in my Lord's eyes. Esau says, no, 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 don't give me the gifts. I have plenty. I have every, I have tons of things. I don't need your stuff. You keep what you, you, what, what you have. There's no need for you to give me this gift. But Jacob says, no, no, no. He insists, I have found favor in your eyes. Please accept my tribute. I'm so excited to see you. It's as if I've seen the face of a divine being. Please accept my gift, which was brought before you. God has given me everything. And he urged him and... Esau agreed to take the gift. Rashi points out that there is a difference between Esau and Jacob's classification of their wealth. Esau said, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. I have even more than I need. Whereas Jacob said, Yeshli Kol, I have everything that I need. Everything that I need, nothing more and nothing less. In effect, Jacob is tacitly acknowledging the fact that the Almighty is in charge of dispensing and dispersing people what they have. And therefore, it's not possible for you to have more than what you need because if you have it, it's evidence that the Almighty gave it to you. And it seems like Jacob has succeeded. Esau has not reacted violently. He seems to be very open to being cordial, being friendly, being loving to his brother. And then what does he say in verse 12? He suggests, why don't we move on together? Let us go. I will proceed alongside you. Right away, Esau pivots from Esau to the brother. He's pursuing friendship. This was the second potential danger that Jacob was concerned about. And he managed to emerge unscathed from the first danger, from Esau, the violent one, And now he's faced with the second danger, maybe even a greater danger, where he says, let's go together. We're brothers after all. And this danger too, Jacob finagles his way out of it. My Lord knows that the children are tender. They're nursing flocks and cattle. I have so many children and there's so many animals. The flocks will die if I'm with you. I have to go very slowly. You go ahead. Don't wait for me. I'm going to catch up to you. I'll eventually make it to Seir, where you live. Rashi tells us something very interesting, that Jacob promises Esau that he'll make it to Seir, where Esau lives. But in reality, he stopped in a place called Sukkos, and he never made it. Rashi tells us, however, Jacob made a pledge to go there. He's still going to fulfill it in Messianic times. As the verse tells us, very famous verse in Scripture, in the times of the Messiah, there's going to be another showdown, another standoff between Jacob and Esau in the in the mountain of Esau, in Mount Seir. Jacob's promise is still going to be fulfilled. This is not the last we've seen of this showdown. There's going to be a fateful one in the times of the Messiah, and we know who's going to win that one. The two brothers depart. Jacob stops in the city of Sukkos, spends several months there, and eventually ends up in the city, in the outskirts of the city of Shechem. He buys a parcel of land, pitches his tent, and settles down and builds an altar to the Almighty. Rashi tells us that Jacob arrived peaceably 
He was intact. He was complete in all ways. His health was perfect. The Almighty healed him from his injury. His wealth was undiminished from his tremendous gift to Esau, and his spiritual level was untainted with his encounters with Laban and Esau. And Rashi gives us an an analogy. He was like someone who had successfully evaded two lions. There was one lion, Laban. There was a second lion, Esau. And Jacob managed to evade and navigate both of those dangers. But as is the trend in Jacob's life, when he's over when he overcomes one hurdle, a second hurdle swiftly appears. And that is going to be chapter 34 with his daughter Dina being abducted. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to look over the daughters of the land. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the prince of the region, saw her, he took her, he lay with her, he violated her. And he became deeply attached to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he wanted to marry her. Rashi tells us that Leah, she is ascribed her maternal relationship, but not her paternal relationship. Dina, the daughter of Leah. And asks Rashi a question, the daughter of Leah, she's also the daughter of Jacob. Why is it why does it call her? Why does it classify her? Why does it label her as the daughter of Leah? And it tells us something very powerful. It says that Leah, in last week's Parsha, she went out. She was adventurous. And here we see that the mother and the daughter are similar. Just like Leah went out. She walked out into the fields. She went out in the open. Dina did the same. She went out. She wanted to hang out. She wanted to... Spend time to to frolic and to be very adventurous. And in the Torah's view, the degradation of Dina could have been avoided if she wasn't too adventurous. And it sees her nature of going out and being curious and seeing the world, maybe in a very hostile neighborhood, that stems from her mother Leah and not from her father Jacob. She acted in a somewhat immodest way, and that left her vulnerable to the horrific assault of Shechem, the son of Hamor, the master of the region. It's just a little confusing here because the city is called Shechem and the individual is called Shechem. Uh, Shechem is the son of Hamor, who is the mayor or the king of the city of Shechem. And... Jacob finds out what happens to his daughter. His daughter was defiled. And the children and the sons, meanwhile, were out with the flock, were out with the field, out in the field with the cattle. And Jacob doesn't make any move until they come back. And then the family of Shechem, they reach out to Jacob and they want to propose this union between Shechem and the daughter of Jacob, Dina, that he had assaulted. Hamar spoke to them saying, Shechem, my son, longs deeply for your daughter. Please give him to her as a wife. And intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. Among us you shall dwell. The land will be yours. Settle and trade in it. Acquire property in it. Let us take our two cultures and meld them together. They even promise to give a very generous marriage gift 
to Dina and her family if they only agree to allow Shechem to marry Dina. Now the children of Jacob respond with a grand deception. They tell him, listen, we love your proposal, but there's a major problem. Y'all are uncircumcised, and it's the most unconscionable thing for us is to have our daughter and our sister be with someone who's uncircumcised. So you want to meld, you want to fuse our two cultures, but we can't do it unless you circumcise all the males in your town. This seemed kind of reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, and they right away called a town hall meeting of all the people of the city, and they said, listen, we have this amazing family, they have 11 awesome sons and this beautiful daughter, and they're so wealthy, and they're so industrious, and but all they need to do, they, they want to join us, they want to give us all the, uh, they want to intermarry with us, they want to give us all these economic opportunities, but the only thing we need, the only circumstance is that we must circumcise. Everything that they have will really be ours once we intermarry and once we allow trade to flourish. Just circumcise. And they, people agreed, and all the males of the city circumcised. And that is a more unpleasant surgery when done as adults than when done as children. Therefore, a few days later, the entire city is in bed with high fever and tremendous pain because of the circumcision ceremony and surgery that they did a few days earlier. And now, when the city is susceptible to attack, two of the sons of Jacob, Shimon and Levi, the brothers of Dina, they take their sword, they attack the city, and they kill every single adult male. They kill Hamor, the king, Shechem, the original perpetrator. They snatch Dina from the palace. They kill everyone, all the males, adult males along the way, and they leave. And this is something that we see, by the way, that they're called the brothers of Dina because they were motivated by brotherhood. They felt that it was so egregious what Shechem had done to their sister that they right away sprung into action, and they took these very drastic measures. They plundered the city, they took the flock, the livestock, the donkeys, everything in the town. They didn't touch the women or the children. They took them as captive, they didn't kill them, but they plundered everything. And Jacob is appalled by this. What are you doing to me? Like, there's other nations and other kingdoms and other city-states over here, and they see this one family attacking a city, committing what would today be called a war crime, to go in and kill innocent civilians. How, how are you doing that? Uh, they're going to attack me. All these other surrounding cities are, are, going to be annihil- are going to annihilate us, me, everyone. And they responded quite bluntly, should he treat our sister like a harlot? We cannot sit idly when our sister is being assaulted and mistreated like this, and therefore we acted as we acted. Now, there's a very interesting teaching in the Rambam regarding this episode. He's puzzled over the fact that the sons of Jacob would behave in such a manner. What is their justification for the slaughter of the city of Shechem? How could they rationalize this behavior to justify killing an entire city because of the crimes 
of one, maybe two residents of the city. Maybe if they just killed Shechem and Hamor, that would be okay because those people uh, aided and abetted or raped uh, an innocent girl. So maybe there would be justification for that. But the entire city, what is their crime? And he tells us that we know there's seven Noahide laws. There's seven universal laws that apply not just to Jews, but to all, everyone in the world, to everyone who's a descendant of Noah, meaning all of humanity, they have to abide by these seven principles. One of those seven principles is that there has to be a system of courts. There has to be some way to monitor and to oversee the behavior of citizens. There can't be anarchy. And here we see a city that obviously didn't have any laws because this Shechem individual grabs, assaults an innocent girl, and no one does nothing. He's able to do whatever he wants without any concern of any backlash. Clearly, this is not a city in which there is laws that hold people accountable, and therefore every adult male who had the capacity to try to stop this terrible crime from happening is complicit in the crime because they did not institute a system of laws that would have prevented it And therefore, they too are guilty of this crime, and therefore, that was their justification to annihilate them. Now, obviously, Jacob doesn't buy it. He starts to rip into Shimon Olevi. He says, you've discomposed me. You've made me odious amongst the habits of the land. He seems to start leveling them with criticism. But at least we know that there was some sort of reasoning in the behavior of Shimon and Levi. Now, it is also maybe a bit unusual uh, that Jacob, you know, if, if, if Shimon and Levi, if they kill an entire city, you would imagine Jacob would have a more strident outburst here. He just tells them, you have discomposed me, you have made me odious amongst the inhabitants of the land. He gives them criticism, but it seems to be a bit muted with proportion to their crime. And at the end of Jacob's life, at the end of Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's on his deathbed, and then he really gives biting criticism to Shimon and Levi for this behavior. He tells them that you've acted like Esau, it's stolen craft, and he gives them very severe punishments for their behavior. And I think this is maybe a model for how we should maybe rebuke our children. You know, Jacob had twin goals. The first goal, of course, was that such behavior should not be repeated. So he gives them this criticism at the end of this episode, and he tells them not to do it again, and you know what? It didn't happen again. But he was also worried that his rebuke might backfire, and the children will just abandon him. He'll lose them. And therefore, he waited until his deathbed until there is no longer a risk that they will escape from him, and then he gives them the full measure of his critique of their behavior. He tells them that they acted like Esau, and he punishes them appropriately. And this may be, maybe the general takeaway is that maybe sometimes the full brunt of the criticism should be withheld to a later date. Chapter 35 begins with the Almighty telling Jacob, go back to Beth-El. That's the same location where 22 years prior, he had had that fateful dream with the angels going up and going down. 
And the money tells them, go back there, make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from Esau, your brother. So Jacob said to his household and to all those who were with him, discard the alien gods that are in your midst, cleanse yourself and change your clothes. Obviously, you find it very hard to believe that Jacob's family would have alien gods. Rashi explains that this is from the booty of Shechem. They just cleaned out an entire city, a city full of idolaters, and it's quite likely that amongst the loot are many gods, many foreign gods, many idols. Get rid of that. We're about to go to the holiest place. We cannot bring that with us. Then continues Jacob, let us arise, go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar to God who answered me in my time of distress and who was with me on the road that I traveled. So they gave to Jacob all the alien gods. They got rid of all the gods and they traveled to Bethel. They arrived there and they built the altar and and they named the altar. And then verse 8, we read how Deborah, the wet nurse of Rebekah, died and was buried below Bethel, below the plateau, and the place was named Alon Bachus. It's a very strange segue here. And also, Deborah is not really a very important character in the Torah. While when Rebekah was sent with Eliezer three weeks ago in the parsha, it says that she took with her Deborah, her wet nurse. But that's the last appearance that she made in the story. And here we find out that she died. It's a very strange little tidbit thrown in over here. So Rashi and the other commentaries tell us that really the person who died, of course, Deborah died, but really what it's trying to tell us is that Rebecca died. But for a variety of reasons, as we shall see, the Torah was not explicit when it tells us about the death of Rebecca. It's only hinting by telling us that her wet nurse died, and we should infer from that that Rebecca died too. It doesn't tell us anywhere that Rebecca died explicitly, only here. This is the last time we read about Rebecca. Why are we not told about the death of Rebecca explicitly? So the Ramban says that she didn't have a very respectable funeral. Her husband Isaac was blind. Her son Esau was a sinner. Jacob was out of town, and because it doesn't want to recount a very shameful funeral lacking the proper respect that she deserved, it just doesn't, it really skirts around the whole issue by not even talking much about her passing. Rashi says something also, I think, very interesting that the reason why it does not invoke Rebecca is because people shouldn't curse her. Because over the course of our history, we're going to suffer a lot from her son, her son Esau, and his terrible evil ways. And therefore, we're concerned that people may lash out, not at Esau, but at Esau's mother, Rebecca. She, after all, harbored him, and therefore she too is guilty. And the Talmud tells us that you're not allowed to curse a living person. And therefore, the commentaries explain that by obscuring the fact that she passed, if we just read the Torah, we wouldn't know that she passed. But, and therefore, we have to assume that she's still alive. Well, if she's still alive, then we can't curse her. And therefore, by going through the circuitous way of, uh, of tying up the Rebecca narrative, we're able to avoid the problems inherent of people lashing out at the mother of Esau. Jacob has another prophecy 
God blesses him. God reaffirms the new name. You no longer just call Jacob. You're called Jacob and Israel as well. Again, he blesses him. He tells him to be fruitful, multiply a nation and a congregation of nations shall descend from you. Teams shall issue from your loins. Yet again, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan is promised. Uh, the Almighty tells him, the land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you and to your offspring after you. I will give the land. Then God ascended from upon him in the place where he had spoken with him. This is a very, this is a very similar verbiage to what we find with respect to the end of Abraham's prophecy. And the commentaries tell us that both Jacob and Abraham, the prophecy ended with God ascending from upon them, meaning that Jacob and Abraham did not dip out of the spiritual level. It was only God deciding to end the prophetic communication. At the spot where Jacob had this prophecy, he builds a pillar, he pours oil upon it, he again renames the place Bethel, and as they're traveling to Ephrath, Rachel, his wife, goes into labor, this is going to be the twelfth son of Jacob, she has a very difficult labor, and as she was about to pass... The midwife tells her, don't worry, you were hoping for another son. You, in fact, named Joseph on the anticipation and hope and aspiration that you have another son. You'll have another son. As she's dying, she says his name should be Ben-Oni, the son of my pain and my suffering. But his father, i.e. Jacob, does not go with that name. Instead, he calls him Benjamin and Rachel died and is buried on the road on the way to Ephrath in the city of Bethlehem of Bethlehem. Jacob sets up a, mo- a monument upon her grave, and that is the monument of Rachel's grave, which we could still visit today. Jacob continued his journey, and when he was in a place called Migdal Eder, again, he's constantly moving closer and closer to Isaac, but he has not yet reunited with him. We read about something very puzzling and troubling that happened. And it came to pass, while Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard the sons of Jacob were twelve. If you just read this verse without reading Rashi or any of the commentaries, it would seem like Reuben committed one of the most unforgivable sins by sleeping with his father's wife, Bilhah. Rashi tells us that what actually happened was the following. Jacob had four wives, and therefore he had to juggle the conjugal relationships with four different women. But his permanent bed was forever in the tent of Rachel. When Rachel passed, he took his permanent bed and moved it into the tent of Bilhah, because Bilhah was the maidservant of Rachel. Now, Reuben was okay with Jacob having his permanent bed in Rachel's tent because, you know, she was one of the primary wives too. But now, after Rachel died, Jacob takes his permanent bed and puts it in Billa, in the maidservant's tent and not in his mother Leah's tent. That he did not tolerate. So he takes Jacob's bed and he drags it out of the tent of Bilah and moves it to his mother's tent. That's what Rashi explains. 
And the way the Torah classifies that, because Reuben interfered in his father's bed activities, that is akin to him sleeping with his father's wife. And then right afterwards, it says the sons of Jacob were 12. It's like reassuring us that the sons of Jacob were 12. They're all the same. Don't read this incorrectly by thinking that Jacob that Jacob's son Reuben was any different in stature than the rest of the sons of Jacob. The Talmud makes it quite clear. Anyone who says that Reuben sinned is nothing but mistaken. If you want to read this literally, you're going to make a mistake. This is the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 55b, because Reuben did something bad, something that he is severely reprimanded for here and on Jacob's deathbed, but he didn't actually do what is what the simple reading of the verse may make you think that he did. The Torah lists the 12 sons of Jacob, and then it tells us that Jacob came to his father Isaac, he was reunited with him, and then it tells us that Isaac passed away, and he was buried by his sons Esau and Jacob. Rashi points out, that chronologically this happened much, much later on in the Torah. But the Torah is not organized chronologically. It's organized topically, and it's focusing on the story of Jacob now. And therefore, when it tells us that he he reunited with his father, the purpose of that is to tell us that he was there in time for Isaac's passing, not to imply that that happened at this juncture. The final chapter of the Parsha, chapter 36, details hundreds of years of the descendants of Esau. It tells us about his multiple wives and his children and all the various interbreeding that took place. Rashi makes the calculation many, many times in this portion, how the Torah is telling us uh, that there was many, many bastards that resulted from Esau's family. And this is the last that we're going to hear about Esau and the Torah. Uh, beginning next, Parsha, Parshas Vayeshev, we're going to be back to the storyline of Jacob. Once we've quickly enumerated all the dozens of individuals and chieftains from the family of Esau, we're going to get back to the most important family storyline, and that is of Jacob. Jacob went through a lot in the Parsha, He was just on the heels of his escape from Laban, where he meets Esau, and he has to struggle with Esau's angel, and he has to deal with his daughter being abducted, and it seems like things are going to be calm going forward, and we will find out next week that that is not exactly how it's going to play out.